Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it's a great pleasure to welcome author, lecturer, and futurist in residence at the Tech Foresight Practice at Imperial College, Richard Watson. Welcome to the show, Richard. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on. I mentioned you're an author. The latest book I've read is The Fantastic Future Minds. I just think it's so relevant, Richard, in a world where AI and artificial intelligence and computers are becoming more and more human that we are actually becoming less and less human and more and more computerized. And when we look at deep thinking, it seems to be the last bastion to protect human jobs, yet we're doing everything to avoid deep thinking. And technology is really shaping how our minds grow and act. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, this is a book I wrote a little while ago, actually, and it's, it's kind of fun to, to, to reread it now. Um, but it's, it's really a sort of a, a plea for thinking, and particularly deep thinking, which I, I think is under threat. And, you know, what I mean by deep thinking is, is thinking, I mean, we all think we think, right? But we, we, I think most of our thinking these days is, is quite narrow, it's quite shallow, it's quite quick. And that's perfectly fine if you're trying to work out what to buy for dinner or, you know, respond to something really, really quickly. But if, if you're doing something really important, if you're trying to solve Syria or if you're trying to sort of invent, you know, a cure for cancer or something, I think you need thinking that's a little bit different. I think you need thinking that's quite rigorous, quite focused, sort of deliberate, considered. Um, calm is, is an important one. Um, attentive, and I think almost most of all reflective. And I don't think you can rush that. And it's very difficult to have that kind of thinking if you're constantly being distracted by, by various digital devices. I mean, the Sherry Turkle, who was at Microsoft Research, coined this term, constant partial attention and it's it's the fact that we you know we've got two three or more devices on at the same time and we're kind of scanning all of them but scanning them on a very sort of superficial level and and we miss we miss things pretty significantly um another thing i saw very recently actually which made me laugh quite a bit was somebody was proposing that we use ai um to spot fake news which i i thought was pretty staggering really because not the best use of AI. And you, you kind of wonder, well, whatever happened to thinking then? So, you know, it begs the question is, is one of the consequences of AI, broad AI, general AI, going to be the fact that we just don't bother thinking anymore? Are we just going to sort of completely delegate that, which I think would be a total disaster? When you think about AI spotting fake news, and then you think about actual algorithms, you mentioned in the book, very few people look beyond the first page of Google, and they say, actually, Where's the best place in the world to hide a dead body is the second page of Google search <laughs> results. And if you think about that and you think about algorithms give you more of what you already know, then it's very difficult for people to go outside the lines and start discovering new things. And therefore, they don't really think anymore. They're fed what they think. That's extremely true. I mean, there was a piece I saw recently about um, Brexit and Trump saying that most people get in their news through things like Facebook. And they were just getting the news that reflected their views. You weren't getting what you used to get, which was a sort of reasonably open-minded, independent perspective. So it's just everything's just turning into a sort of giant echo chamber. And if you want to flip it back to the sort of ideas and insights, innovation, that's bad news. You know, we, we need really diverse inputs and a lot of them. And it, it seems to be we're, we're sort of potentially narrowing, which is is quite worrying. And also this, this back to this point about distraction. I mean, there was something I came across years ago saying that the average American office worker was distracted 11, every 11 minutes. And I, find, I think that's probably just completely untrue now. I, I'd say it was every sort of 
three, four. It's, I can't believe it's still 11. That doesn't sort of feel right at all. And it also said that it, it can take up to an hour for people to remember what they were supposed to be doing when they got distracted, which is a bit of a worry. So, you know, and that's, that's fine with some things. But again, if, you, if you're thinking very, very deeply, distraction is not good. And also we've, we've sort of lost or we are losing these sort of calm, contemplative, can't even say that word, spaces. Um, you know, there's, there's, there seems to be noise everywhere. There's busy, busyness everywhere. And, and the, again, there's this sort of disease of busyness. You know, we've, we've got to be moving, doing stuff, which a lot of the time is complete and utter nonsense. I mean, I can, I can understand where that's come from. You know, if you go back 100 years and you're looking at factory work, um, if you fell asleep on, on the production line, that's, that's probably pretty bad news. Um, but so, so physical movement was associated with productivity. But if you're in a sort of knowledge economy and you're paid for your ideas, you know, staring out of the window all day could be the most productive thing you do all year. But it, it's still pretty much frowned upon along with sort of falling asleep at work, which is another thing that's actually potentially quite a good thing to do from time to time. I read a blog you wrote that actually talks about this, the importance of having lunch, even to interact with other, other people and bounce around ideas. Because you talk about this concept as well, that we've been trained to almost collect dots and dots being information when the future of the world is actually connecting dots. And you talk about the importance of quantity over quality, because you actually need to have lots of diverse concepts to be in, in order to connect them. Yeah, I, th I think if, you, if you're looking for ideas, you know, the first stage, which is essentially around education, you might call it, um, is it's, it's all about volume, I think, to some extent. And, and all, it, it all, we call it inputs rather than, rather than education, if you want. It, you need lots of it and you need it to be as, as diverse as possible. And again, it's, it's getting back to this sort of narrowing, potentially. Um, and we're, we're, we're more and more living in our own, own bubbles. And we're, and we're also more and more working on our own, living on our own. And it, it worries me that, that there's just not enough serendipity out there in terms of bumping into sort of random ideas, random people. And you, and you see this. I mean, I was, you know, you, you see this getting on a bus or on a train. People don't talk to each other anymore. They don't stare out of the window anymore. They're just staring down at these tiny devices. And I even had it yesterday. I was, I was on, a, on holiday and we were in this sort of this vehicle with this amazing scenery. And there's a guy there who occasionally looked out of the window, but essentially when, he, and when they stopped this thing, he got out and had a quick look around, but then he got back and he started looking at his phone again. You go, well, God, when, when are you ever going to stop doing this? You know, you cannot be in this fight or flight mode indefinitely. You know, we do need to relax. We, for, for our physical and mental health, we need to switch things off now and again. And, and, but the, the prevailing culture is that's a bad thing to do. You know, there is absolutely nothing wrong with going out for lunch. There's absolutely nothing wrong with, with having a bit of a nap at, at lunchtime. You've got to obviously sort of pick your moment. And, and the other thing that sort of kind of links to this, which is a bit of a weird one, which I was chatting to some about somebody recently, was this, this sort of rather sort of false way of, of doing idea generation insight, where you have a meeting with an agenda and you do a brainstorm and quite often involves, you know, funny hats and sort of giant colored beanbags and some felt tips. And somebody was saying, you know, well, the best meetings I ever had were when we had smoking, um, you know, you weren't allowed to smoke in the office, obviously. It wasn't that far long ago. But we used to go outside and we used to have these random serendipitous meetings with other smokers outside the building. And we used to start chatting about stuff, but there was no agenda. It was completely serendipitous. And there was, there was no sort of power play at work here. And we used to sort of come up with problems and come up with solutions out there smoking cigarettes. And that's to some extent been, been sort of taken away now. And lunch was another example of that. You just sort of, I mean, I remember when I started work years ago on a Friday, People would yell around, who wants to go out and have a, have a pint or who wants to go and have lunch? And just this sort of random selection of people from all sorts of different departments would descend in a, 
Italian restaurant and have lunch and start shooting the breeze. And sometimes they talk about absolutely nothing apart from where they've been on holiday. Um, other times they'd actually sort of talk about, you know, really serious work-related problems and quite often solve them during lunch as well. And that's sort of been a bit lost. It's now seen as far more productive to sort of never move from your desk and drop sandwich crumbs into your keyboard, etc., which is not good for, for physical mental health. I don't think it's particularly good for ideas either. Do you think that's why we're seeing like the birth of, you know, Headspace, Calm, these apps, the meditative apps? Yeah, I think that, I mean, you are beginning to see this. I mean, this, the book we're talking about was, was written, it came out in 2010. So it's, it's, not, it's not a new book. And I was talking about then about the need to switch off and digital detoxes and digital diets and so on, which at the time was seen as pretty cranky. We are beginning to see that now. I mean, there are certain holiday resorts where you're supposed to hand in your your mobile phones when you arrive, a bit like the Wild West where you handed over your guns before you went into the, into the bar. You're seeing sort of articles, travel articles about the need to switch this stuff off. You're ha- you know, there are companies out there like Atos in, in France and um, I think Daimler or Siemens in Germany that are, that are trying to have days where people actually communicate physically rather than you know this sort of pathological thing of emailing somebody that's 12 feet from you. Um, and, and again, I think, I mean, if you take this back to innovation ideas, I, mean, I, I see ideas as inherently social. You know, they, they need to bump into other ideas and they need to cross-fertilize. And I think people are much the same at work. You know, work is, is a very social thing. And, you know, it, it, it's quite personal, I suppose. I mean, some people work incredibly well on their own um, with headphones blaring out Black Sabbath. And other people like total silence on their own. Other people like a, a busy office where they can have a bit of a chat and a bit of cake and boil a cup of tea, you know. Um, so, but, but, but I think fundamentally we are social and ideas are social. And it worries me sometimes the direction it's going in because of this sort of onslaught of digital technology and distraction. You mentioned that guy, and I know you know you were on a great trip to to Iceland, and I can imagine like you're there seeing a geezer at Glacier, and instead of actually enjoying it, people are taking photos of it or videoing it. And you know, I saw this my son Jake's uh, nativity play. I looked around the room, and everybody, every parent, even both parents, had holding up in front of them a screen in between them and the experience instead of actually experiencing the experience. I mean, that is the world we live in now, and what you talk about in the book is what we're actually teaching our kids and what our kids are actually being born into that that is actually shaping the way they think because they're very flippant they're more left brain than right brain in a world where they need to be right brain going forward mm. i mean i think we've got this culture of now you know we've we've sort of lost we've lost recent history let alone deep history which which i don't think is a particularly good thing and as you say is everything is sort of mediated through a screen so we're, we're sort of losing self-knowledge to, to some extent i mean this this the, these they're an american couple in in this jeep and you know at one point we you know we drive onto this glacier for heaven's sake and the guy is doing his work email i mean i'm behind them so i can see exactly what they're doing because i'm a bit noisy bit nosy but he's doing his work email whilst you're driving onto a glacier and she's on TripAdvisor looking for things to do the following day and i'm going hang on a minute, we've just driven onto a goddamn glacier. Are you not going to look out of the window? You're not going to get out of the Jeep? <laughs> well, the, 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 the classic example, I used to live in Sydney, and we went to the, that TV show Little Britain in this theatre, and it was a sellout performance, really big theatre. And so they had these giant screens, and, and, and they essentially did a, a sort of live version of the TV show, and it was filmed and put on, on the giant screens. And the pe- all of the people in front of me essentially had iPads or, or cameras or phones out, and they were videoing the giant screen. So it was, it was actually two, almost two stages removed from what was going on. You kind of wonder, well, 
you know, what do you, I mean, I don't know what the answer to this is, or whether it's a problem, maybe it isn't, but I, I just think you are removing yourself, you're filtering things. And we're not looking, we're sort of losing the ability to, to look at things really closely. And the other thing we're losing potentially is, is an awareness of other people and their needs. You know, we're eroding empathy to some extent because, you know, we're, we're so obsessed with staring down at these tiny screens. We don't see the people in front of us, you know, on either side of us and so on, which, which can't be great for social cohesion, if you ask me. And what's sort of ironic, if you take this back to education, is, you know, the two things that humans are unbelievably good at, that no smart machine, no general artificial intelligence, as far as I'm concerned, will ever do, which is essentially around creativity and inventiveness and, and compassion and empathy. Those are the two things that AI essentially can't do or can't do very well. And they're what we do really well. Um, and they're being destroyed by all of this stuff. You know, and we are, the education system is, is essentially focused on getting us to sort of memorize facts that are then applied according to sets of formal rules. Well, that's exactly what computers do. So we're, we're essentially educating our, our children for redundancy, as, as far as I can, I can work out. You know, education teaches us that everything has a right-wrong answer, which isn't necessarily true. It's all about sort of precise, logical thinking as the way to pass exams, and it's, the focus is kind of sequential, reductive, logical thinking. Um, you know, it's very single-minded when it, when it should be very broad-minded. And, um, and, and then throwing iPads into the mix and getting kids to use interactive screens in classes. I mean, it's a, as far as I'm concerned, it's a, a recipe for disaster. I mean, it's not wholly bad. I mean, they're, they're brilliant at, at doing certain things. And I think what we need to think about to some extent is, well, you know, what are we trying to achieve? What kind of thinking are we trying to do? What problem are we trying to solve? And then what technology, if any technology, is the most appropriate to use. And sometimes it will be a smartphone or an iPad or some other form of computer. Um, other times it'll be a pen and paper. Um, some other times it might involve walking out of the classroom and going out into the woods and have a, a good look around. You know, we need, and, and, and don't forget that things like paper and pencils are very, very clever forms of technology. And it's not that you can, my view is you can't just take stuff that was in one media format and throw it in another and expect no consequence. You know, that it, we are shaped by the medium still. The whole Marshall McCullum quote, I can't remember the exact quote, but, you know, the medium is the message, that one. Um, we need to think very, very carefully about that. And one of the w worries I have is we are throwing away a lot of good ideas and bringing in stuff that's kind of so-so to some extent. And, and that, that needs to be resisted a little bit. I mean, you know, the, the only game in town is technology. You know, that, that seems to be an end in itself, which is complete nonsense. I mean, technology is a tool to another end, as far as I can work out, always. Yeah, uh, always has, yeah. And, and just, just going back to kids, because you talk in the book about this, and I, and I suppose in a world of, you know, soccer moms, and you mentioned there the lady looking at TripAdvisor to, to, while she's mid-trip, looking at what the next one is, that, that we there's this kind of pressure on society to keep kids busy the whole time. And we had the great professor Susan Greenfield, who, who you mentioned in the book on the show in the past. And she talked about one of her biggest advantages was being poor and she had to find play. She had to find amusement for herself. And you talk about this in the book about the benefits of free play and no instructions versus instructions. And, and that being actually a good thing to just, go and play and, and, and let them use their mind. And that actually helps them shape for the future. Absolutely. I mean, I'm a huge fan of boredom, but the, the, the view of society these days is boredom is almost something that needs to be cured. I mean, you know, boredom is beautiful. Boredom is, is a sort of prelude to engagement. It, you know, you, you've, if, if you are faced with nothing, 
Um, and I mean nothing. You know, you've got 12 weeks of school holidays and you've got no television, no computers, no nothing. You, you've barely got a football to kick on a, on a lawn. You are going to get really inventive about what you do with yourself. And you, you will hopefully become quite curious about things and you will find things, things to do. And, you know, and, and I think this is incredibly relevant to, to innovation and creativity because, you've, it, I mean, if you're trying to have a really good idea, that's the last thing you should do. You know, you've got to stop trying to have one to get one, if that makes any sense. You know, you've got to, you've got to start by doing what seems like nothing. Um, you know, you, you need to sort of fill your head with what the problem is and, do, and then sort of do some incubation and some education around that. But at some point, you've got to stop trying to come up with a solution. You've got to either do nothing or you've got to do something that's, that's quite unrelated and quite mundane, you know, driving, running, showering, weeding the garden. And then, then sort of ideas tend to come to you. I mean, there's, there's a real stage. I mean, we don't really know too much about how the human imagination works or, or how we actually come up with ideas. I mean, there's no process, there's no formula that anyone's come up with that's completely foolproof. But it does seem that it's around getting some inputs. And as we said earlier, it's about quantity and the diversity of inputs. It's then you have to have this sort of incubation phase and sleep fits into that. But so does sort of sitting there staring at the ceiling for an extended period. And at some point when, when, you're, when your subconscious is ready for it, after it's sort of thought about things and mix things around and cross-fertilize things, out pops a thought. Um, and, and if we sort of are constantly frantic and busy, I think that reduces that. Um, and and that's, that's not a good thing at all. And also, you know, if we're constantly sort of filling every moment, I think it sort of fries our minds to some extent. And this, this is back to the point about the mindfulness and how that's sort of coming through. Um, you know, you, you just can't exist like that for the whole of your life. You're just going to burn yourself out. The idea of the term sleep on it actually means something. And just like we talked about with lunch, people are skipping lunch because it's seen as a badge of honor or it's seen as a weakness to go and need lunch, need sustenance. And likewise, people are using lack of sleep as a badge of honor. The, the phrase sleep on it came, came about in 1953. I mean, it, and, 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 you know, people, I think, and probably still do think to some extent that when we're asleep, our brain's doing nothing it's switched off and nothing could be further from the truth but I, I vaguely remember reading somewhere that when we're asleep our brain is using more electricity or more, more energy consuming more power if you like than when we're actually awake which tells you something you know when we're asleep or, or when we're just sort of staring out the window and daydreaming and we are processing information you know the brain's working out what to keep what to file and where what links with what it's all around you know memory stabilization storage and if, if you reduce the amount of it's not just the amount of sleep it's the type of sleep as well but if, if you um, reduce the amount and the, and the quality of sleep beyond a certain level it seems like this memory memory stabilization and storage doesn't work very well and, and at the extreme doesn't work at all and you know but as you say it's a sort of bit of a badge of honor particularly with with alpha males you know hey look, look how little sleep i had or how little sleep i need it's the whole sort of margaret thatcher fallout to some extent and some people can exist on very little sleep. There's no doubt about that. But most of us need it need it quite badly. Um, just for, as I say, for sort of everyone knows about the sort of the physical side of it, but also the mental side of it, and also the the idea side of it. Um, it it's extremely valuable. Um, but I, I, I think we might at some point turn the corner on that and actually start to see that it, you know it's actually a badge of honor to have a lot of sleep. You know, um, it's really really important. It's not just work i mean people aren't just working like they're doing netflix binges they're on their their xbox and we all did that as kids you know we all went and and did these uh all-nighters on on the back in my day the spectrum 128k 
<laughs> do you remember those? Yeah, those in the Atari, the Atari. It's just there's so much more now. And then there's social media, and social media means they're always connected. And then there's this pressure from society. And, and you gave some frightening little nuggets where, despite an increase in IQ, basic reading and, and writing skills have deteriorated massively in, in recent years. I mean, I've, I've witnessed this firsthand with, with probably we used to live in Australia the same. I've witnessed it both in the UK and Australia where we, we, we were the sort of the vanguard of iPads being introduced into education. And my, you know, some people will have a different experience of this, but my experience was it absolutely destroyed attention spans. It destroyed handwriting. It destroyed spelling. Um, it was it was essentially a complete and utter disaster. But we were we were the sort of the experimental year, and it's now been changed. You know, they the, a lot of the kids don't get to take the devices home anymore. They're not used or they're not available all the time in lessons. They're they're brought out in certain times. Um, so it's it's sort of changing, you know, quite a bit. But this and this whole sort of multitasking thing is a bit of a myth as well. Um, and 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 don't forget that a lot of this technology it's not just accidentally addictive. It is being deliberately designed to be addictive, which I think ethically is is highly, highly suspect. And 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 back to the multitasking thing. I mean, yeah, multitasking is fine. You know, you can you can do two or three reasonably mundane, superficial things at the same time without too much trouble. But you know, if you start trying to do something very difficult as one of those three things, you're going to end in trouble. I mean, you know, you can chew gum and cross the road at the same time and almost certainly be totally fine. But if you're trying to text somebody or write a rather sort of complicated breakup text whilst chewing gum and crossing the road, you could uh, will very likely be hit by a car. And this is, I mean, this is something we're actually seeing um, with coroners. People are just getting mown down because they're not looking up. I mean, I, I, I play a rather naughty game, actually, in places like Oxford Street. They're really busy, and you get these people on their, on their phones staring at their phones and not looking at where they're going. And I, I kind of don't move out of the way, and I just see how close are they going to get before they go smack into me. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a dreadfully naughty thing to do, but it's quite amusing. You didn't you didn't say if you were in the car or not, though, Richard. <laughs> no, I don't do it in the car. I don't run people over on the car if they're on their phone crossing the road. No, I, I must I come over around somewhere. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, like I saw in some country they have actually, and I see, I actually think this is part of the problem that we're actually facilitating all this. It, in one in one country, European country, they've actually put in on the ground, so over the pedestrian crossing on the ground uh, a light uh, shines out onto the ground to show it green or red so, oh so my people God. don't I you going to tell me yeah. about the mobile phone lanes which I I've heard about I saw some stairs recently that had a big sign at the bottom saying hold on to the handrail and do not use your phone whilst using these stairs obviously because somebody's tumbled down and done some damage but it, it's a lack of I mean it's a complete lack of common sense and the other thing is um, this is not a sort of a Luddite thing, and although, by the way, Luddites are hugely misunderstood in terms of their reluctance to use technology. But, um, you know, this is really a, a plea for balance. I'm not saying this stuff's bad at all. Uh, you know, it's extremely useful and good in certain circumstances. But it's, a, it's around getting the balance of, of different types of technology. It's about getting the balance of having it switched on and switch off. You know, when is it appropriate to use stuff and not? You know, is, is it appropriate to answer a phone call during a funeral? I'd say probably not. Um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And at the moment, you know, being optimistic, I think it's just about us. This is very new technology. Most of this stuff is well under 10 years old. Um, and we're just struggling a little bit to try and get the balance right. It's all very, very new. Um, and bear in mind, you know, we, there's a lovely quote I use in a, in a more recent book about having paleolithic brains and medieval 
um, institutions and the technology of the gods. I mean, that's very much where we're at. You know, our brains haven't changed very much since we crawled out of caves, but we've got smartphones in our hands now. And, and there's a bit of tension <laughs> between those two things. You have a great line that kids today are mentally agile, but they're culturally ignorant. When they're connected, like there's so much pressure on them in a way from social media. And there, there's a selfie for everything. It's like a selfie in the gym with a full face of yeah. makeup. And the, the pressure that puts on the society where kids go, oh, well, that's normal now. I mean, I, first of all, I mean, I, I wrote something quite recently, actually, on, on, on selfies. And, you know, selfies are nothing new. I mean, I think Rembrandt painted about 35, 40 selfies. There's nothing new about a selfie. It's just, you know, it was quite difficult to do a selfie 500 years ago or whatever. It's now incredibly <laughs> easy due to camera phones and particularly the ability to rever the, reverse the camera. I don't even know what that's called. Yeah. But, um, um, but you're right. The pressure... Is, is Well, it's never-ending. I mean, when I was at school, you know, there was bullying when I was at school. Of course there was. But it kind of ended when you left school. Um, now it, could, it has the potential to go on forever. And, you know, we are, we are globally networked, and so is the peer pressure to some extent. And, yeah, people, are, people won't even go out until they've got the makeup on because they're worried about the selfie or somebody taking a photograph of them. And just the, the pressure around young kids today on this stuff is, is appalling. Although, again, you know, being fairly optimistic about it, it's, it's got a little bit better I think people are, are kids. I mean, I saw something recently you could buy. And you could, if you haven't got the willpower to switch your phone off, you put it in this like little box and it, you, you program how long you want to keep it in there. And you say five minutes a week, a month, whatever. And it physically won't open until the time is gone. And you can't get your phone out. So, you know, little things like that, they're kind of like weak signals in futurist speak of, of people trying to do something. It's kind of like it's, it's sort of an early invention or innovation in that kind of kind of area which is kind of encouraging, really. And, you know, we're not... Uh, there are a lot of anecdotal examples of, of people modifying their behavior around stuff. I mean, even within sort of cinemas now, there are less people talking on the phone than, than there used to be. It's almost unheard of now, whereas five years ago, it was relatively common. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's going, I think, in, in the right direction. But um, I just think we need an, a voice other than technology. You know, th th yeah. this future is largely being created by a handful of companies in California and, you know, barely 100 or 200 men probably in their 20s and 30s are designing this future, which may work for them, but it's not necessarily going to work for the rest of us. And I think there needs to be an alternative voice and, and the thought that technology is not necessarily destiny. You know, there are other factors at play here. And that's actually, that's back to the rebalancing, because I think when people think about the future or, or when they are innovating or designing the future with a lot of these devices, they are focused pretty much purely on the technology in a, in a logical, linear manner. And actually, what you need to consider is the human reaction to a lot of this stuff. And humans are highly irrational. We're very emotional. Um, we do crazy stuff. Um, and you've got to sort of consider that. I mean, you know, look at what happened with Google Glass. I mean, I don't, I don't have the inside track on exactly what happened with that. But I, I think one of the reasons it didn't work and got withdrawn for the time being, at least, was, was the fact that people were worried about what they looked like or other people were worried about being photographed or so on. So there's nothing wrong with the technology, but they hadn't really thought through the psychology properly. We had Nir Eyal on the show before, and he talks about this, the, you know, creating technology that's habit-forming and that, that this has been done under our noses. Apps do it. They use push notification very cleverly to get people hooked and continually using the technology is certainly being built into the technology. What about like thinking spaces where people do their best thinking? Well, it, it's interesting to say that because when, when I was sort of writing the book, uh, I realized I, you know, there just wasn't really any research about where people did their best thinking. 
and I started I started sort of talking to people about this, and I, I ended up um, buying in an email list of people I didn't know, so I could email them where they did their best thinking, and not surprisingly, I got no response from that whatsoever. I then um, typed up some letters, and I got I got quite a sort of decent response. And interestingly, I didn't have to explain what I meant by deepest thinking. People sort of instinctively seemed to know it was you know it was productive, most useful, most most valuable. And then I then I sort of eventually started handwriting letters, which got the most extra, I think I got a 70% response rate, which was kind of interesting because I was asking the same question to similar people. And I, I got really quite carried away. And I started asking people like the Prince of Wales and Nick Mason from Pink Floyd and Susan Greenfield and Howard Gardner. And I got responses from all of them. And the really interesting thing is out of about a thousand responses at the end, only one person said they did their best thinking at work which is, is pretty extraordinary. And they were lying because they, they said really, really early or really, really late when there's nobody else in the building, which I thought was pretty interesting. <laughs> um, and, you know, where people do do their best thinking, it's, it's kind of, it's not rocket science. It's, it's on holiday. It's up mountains, on beaches, in the gym, driving, in the shower, in the bath, you know, really late at night, that sort of marshland when you're not, not quite awake, but not quite asleep, which is my favorite place to come up with good thinking. Um, and, this was done, you know, a while ago now, but it was interesting that when I asked the question, essentially nobody mentioned technology. It was solitary. People were on their own. There was an absence of technology, um, and it was usually somewhere quite calm and quite quite quiet. And the response, you'd, you'd expect that of people, maybe 40 or 50, but 18-year-olds said the same thing. Men and women said the same thing. People from Australia, India, and the U.S. said the same thing. It was very, very consistent. Um, and there were some really interesting sort of themes running through it. I mean, the presence of moving water was a really interesting one. Um, reading was another. People people had good ideas reading books, reading newspapers, and so on. Um, people didn't have good ideas watching the TV or on Facebook. Interestingly, and I'm I'm hopefully going to redo that research, you know, seven years on and see if I get similar results or not. But it was it was. Pretty interesting. The point about not at work. I thought that was fabulous. Most people don't know what the, what you mean anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but Richard, I'd love to jump to this because we we talked about right. So th this is what's going on. This is what's happening in society. Society, and, and we, we might look to some solutions in a little while. But in, in the corporate world, right? So in the innovation work, work you you do, and you know we do in Callaway as well, is you see a rejection of the exact type of people that are needed in, in today's world. So you need these kind of diverse thinkers, these people with diverse backgrounds, people who have traveled and who have many different lenses of experience. Yes, corporate corporations resist these type of people. And you talk about this in the book where the human mind treats uh, new ideas the same way it does an attack from the body and it rejects them. How how do you see corporations involving and, and kind of merging these new people into the companies? Because it's, it's, it's exactly what I mean, they that, need. Yeah, I mean, that, that was the, I think I call it the corporate immune system. And I think that's true with institutions. It's also true with individuals. We actually, we, you know, we think we like new and we like newish. We like things that we understand and look a bit similar to things that we've used before or come across before. But we don't, we don't like things that are too crazy new. They're, they're, they're a bit scary. Um, with corporations, that that's, especially true and you know let's let's not let's put this into some perspective you know corporations were, were never meant to be innovative in my view you know corporations i mean they they, they start off as highly um inventive and innovative i mean that you know at some point somebody or some small group of people has has an idea and you have that classic sort of start upstart startup mentality they're very hungry they're very energetic 
There's very little bureaucracy. Um, they usually starve them to death, by the way, financially, and they'll try all sorts of things. Um, and, you know, if it works, they grow and they, the bureaucracy comes in and the culture comes in and all the rest of it. And then it sort of switches. And, and, and the mission essentially is, is not, not to bet the farm, not to lose the farm. Um, so, so companies are basically there to evolve an existing idea and to protect an existing idea. And virtually everyone in that organization is going to be compensated for doing that thing. Um, so for somebody to come along with a new idea, and, and particularly for somebody to come along with an idea that potentially could cause the existing idea to die, is very, very problematic. But the dilemma is, if you don't do it, somebody else probably will. You know, a competitor will probably do it. So you constantly have to be sort of thinking about, you know, who could disrupt you and how, and, 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 and therefore, how might you do that internally? And I, I, you touched on this earlier, but, you know, the great the great issue is how do you hire the very people that wouldn't work for you in a million years? Because those are the people <laughs> that you need. First, I mean, you need people that probably dislike you for some reason, uh, which is a very good thing. I mean, you know, it's, it's based on, on things not being done properly or, or whatever, and, and you can actually sort of flip that around. Um, but also, you know, these, these people don't like big, bigness. They don't like bureaucracy. Um, they don't like stuffy suits and all the rest of it. So how on earth can you entice these people to come and work for you? And that's that's a tricky one. And almost the only way you can do it is to offer some kind of mission or purpose or, or something like that. But it's it's very, very difficult. My, my, my own personal view is with, and this, you'll probably kill me for saying this, but with very large corporations, it's almost not worth bothering, actually. Um, I think one of, one of the, there's two things you could do. One is you, you take an M&A approach to innovation. Um, you go out there looking for people doing really interesting things, and essentially you buy them. Or, or, or better still, you fund them. Because, um, you know, the, the, the big company can provide financial support. It can provide legal support and all, all kinds of infrastructure and channels and you know, distribution systems and all the rest of it that the startup doesn't have. But on the other hand, the startup's going to bring the sort of the ideas and the energy and all the rest of it. Um, the other thing I think that, that works very well is to adopt a sort of skunk works mentality. So you, you, don't, you don't sort of set up your innovation department necessarily in the middle of the organization. You actually have it on the fringe or, or actually not even in the same building. You almost sort of replicate the startup mentality, but also physicality. Um, and, and you get people, and you get very little contact between the two. I'm trying to remember the name of a book, I think it's called Insights of Genius by Warren Bennis that, that talked about these skunk works. And that seems to work pretty well. Although having said that, you know, some very big companies are very, very good at innovation. Um, you know, and the boring example is probably Apple, but there's, there's plenty of others. 3M is another boring example. Um, you've got to get the culture right. And if you haven't got the culture right, I'm not sure how easy it is to save you with a process. You know, unless you've got somebody very, very high up supporting innovation, it's, I don't personally think it's going to go very far. Um, and yeah. you've got to allow, constantly allow, I mean, this is all, this is old, old hat to some extent, but you know, you've got, you've got to allow people to do experiments the whole time. And, you know, companies like Apple and Google are very good at this, you know, give them 3M, you know, the 15% rule, I think, is it at Google or somewhere where you can spend 15% of your work time doing anything that may or may not benefit the company. It's, it's like playtime, essentially. You can just go and have a bit of a play, and they may or may not offer some funding or some kind of, you know, there might be some sort of prize or competition element or something. Um, and that, that seems to work extraordinarily well. But I, th I think it's got better now because I think people, the big companies realize how incredibly vulnerable they are now, particularly around technology. 
So they are getting more open to this, the idea of doing this, but they're still very, very resistant to anything that's, that's new or threatening in any way. There's a great line you have in the book, and you say, it's Isaac Newton's statement that if I have seen further, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants. And then you turn that around. You, you mentioned Benjamin Jones, a professor at the Kellogg School of Management, says if one is to stand on the shoulders of giants, one must first climb up their backs. And the greater the body of knowledge, the harder it is to climb those shoulders. That really sums it up is because some companies are too far gone. And I get what you mean. Some aren't worth doing it with. And it's not that they're not worth it. It's just that they're too far gone, that, that yeah. they're, they're too far down their process, that it's and, very, and, very difficult. And also, I mean, you know, if, if you think of really original thinkers, they can be pretty flippant eccentric, quite frankly. Um, mm. You know, they're, they're, putting aside the fact they dress rather weirdly, potentially, and, you know, crazy hairstyles and probably don't wash too often, you know, whatever. They, they don't sit well in, in corporate life. And, and if, you, if you look at American corporate life in particular, that is really quite conservative, um, and, and there's a real sort of culture clash going on over there. But, you know, there are people who are doing really good things. I mean, P&G, I love this idea of the reverse mentoring they do, where, you know, some 22-year-old comes in and ends up mentoring the 70-year-old board director, not the other way around. And, you know, they both learn from each other. That's a fantastic way of trying to do that. I've, I've, I've come across other things like there's a design company I used to be a non-exec for where who, they used to sort of rotate the seating all the time. So, you know, the new, the 21-year-old, comes in and to begin with sits next to uh, you know a, a designer that's 10 years older than them and then then they're sitting next to the finance director then they're sitting next to the head of HR then then sitting next to the catering person you know and 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 in terms of the flow of ideas that is a that is another fantastic thing you can do but it's, i think it all boils to, it all boils down to some extent to the to the culture of the organization it's either there or it isn't although it does change because obviously if you if you have a sort of change in management team or ceo the culture can change and and it it can change reasonably fast. And it's not something that's, that's going to happen overnight, but it, it can still change quite fast. And also the other thing that I think that links to this a little bit is when I wrote a piece about this not so long ago, you know, the, the, the benefits of destruction, essentially. I think that we have sort of clarity of thinking as, as individuals and institutions, essentially one, t- one time or, or very few times in our lives when we think we're going to die, essentially. But innovation, companies are at their most innovative when they're in trouble. Because they, you know, it creates a sort of clarity, and they will try things that are a little bit riskier. And and the same is true, I think. You know, I, I mean, I nearly drowned once in Australia, and I've had a couple of other incidents where you thought, oh my god, that was a bit of a close call. And you sort of reassess everything, and all the sort of minor stuff falls away, and you focus on the stuff that's really, really important. And to some extent, you can create process to replicate that up to a point. Um, so, sort of creating a sort of, you know, that, that sort of atmosphere. It, can work really well, or it can also be end up being like Uber if you're not careful as well. You have to take that bit out. Um, you know, <laughs> it, it can get very, very toxic very, very quickly. But yeah, trying to yeah. sort of create that sort of real clarity and focus, and not getting stuck up on all the sort of mundane nonsense that you get in large organisations. Yeah, and status quo and vested interest and all that kind of stuff. So, so solutions for the future, Richard, for people with kids or even for themselves in a world of distraction. What, what do you see as solutions? I think, I think, you know, you should ritualize to some extent the idea of having, a, ideally, a day a week where you switch things off and you physically connect. You know, what you, was previously called Sunday when I was growing up, um, or, of course, the <laughs> religious persuasion Saturday, when, you know, in, you know, back in the 70s, you couldn't shop. The shops were all shut. 
Uh, yeah. There's only three channels. Most of those weren't on there on a Sunday anyway. You know, you had to sort of back to the boredom thing. You had to sort of amuse yourself. You had to sort of deal with each other. So I, I think some way of 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 just having you know maybe maybe you just agree in the household that at, at eight o'clock at night you switch all the phones off or you switch the mobile off and you just have the landline or something or. Um, you don't just, if there's nothing on TV, you just, you actually sit and chat to each other. I think having, you know, on a, having Sunday lunch together and sitting down and talking is, is hugely important. And, and going on holiday and leaving this stuff behind, easier said than done, I appreciate, but it's, is an, is, it's another thing you can do. Just have one week a year where you get away from this stuff and, and you think. Now, if you've got kids, um, the thinking isn't necessarily going to be that deep because you've still got, you've got a different type of distraction going on the whole time. But, um, I think getting away from from stuff, um, you know, climbing a mountain, walking on a lonely beach or whatever, and and just thinking is is really really good. With corporations, I mean, you can do much the same thing. Bill Bill Gates was famous for his Think Weeks. He'd go to a really remote cabin, um, ironically with no technology, and think about the future of Microsoft. And if the richest man in the world could manage to do that for a week, I don't see why anyone else can't do it too. Um, and again, ritualize it, institutionalize it. So maybe, maybe on uh, on on, you know, on Mondays you 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 don't use email. Or I was having a chat with a the the um, the, the partner in a, a law firm recently, the, the the main guy, and he was getting very frustrated that when people came in, um, you know, very early in the morning, being a law firm, seven a.m., seven thirty a.m., the first thing they do is after they've got a coffee, is switch their computer on. He was just trying to get them to just wait for five minutes. And scribble some notes about what they're going to achieve that day, that week, that month, that quarter, rather than just instantly switching a computer on. So it's, it's again, it's 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 around balance and it's around flow. Um, a thing I'm currently looking at, I haven't written about this at all. Is I'm I'm beginning to quite like the idea of manual Mondays, which is probably daydreaming. I think you know you're not going to get people to do this once a week, but you could possibly get it to happen once a month, where people, particularly people that are knowledge workers sitting in front of computer screens all day are encouraged to get outside and interact with the community locally, um, nature or whatever, and kind of think with their hands, if you know what I mean, rather than their, rather than their heads. Yeah. Um, and I think that would be a very good thing to do for sort of physical and mental health, but also it, it, it's got other benefits as well. Um, uh, that possibly is, is, is a way to do things. I mean, there's, again, there's some interesting stuff. I mean, I think it's Siemens in Germany. It's either Siemens or Daimler has, has got this thing where if you're on holiday, if I'm on holiday and you email me, you get an email back saying, I'm on holiday, your email has been deleted. Um, oh, and if nice. it's really important, you, could, you can phone this number. And of course, nothing ever is that important and nobody ever phones the number. But it means that people aren't constantly dealing with emails when they're on holiday or, you know, that thing where you get back from holiday and you've got 300 to wade through. Um, there's a accountancy practice I know of where new hires get two two mobile phones given to them. One is for work, one is for home. And there's this rule that you switch or you switch the work one off after seven and you don't call people after seven on the work mobile. If something is incredibly important, you can call them on, on their personal mobile. But again, very few people ever do because very few things mm. are ever that important. But you can sort of institutionalize this, ritualize this stuff. Or ATOS, as I say, has a day a week where they get people to go and talk to each other rather than sending emails. Um, and they get, this is actually an important point we haven't covered already. In terms of understanding of people, if I send you a text, I, you can really misunderstand what I'm saying. You know, there's no tonality in, in a text message particularly. Um, there's certainly no body language. And I read somewhere that 90% of communication is, is, is nonverbal. It's all around body language. It's how, you know, what somebody's doing with their eyes, how they're sitting, how they're dressed, and so on. Um, 
and and you know it's not to say that we shouldn't email. Email is very very useful, but in certain situations, go and see somebody or make a phone, do a voice call, don't send them a text, and so on. So again, it's about thinking about the right form of technology for the for the form of communication or the problem you're trying to deal with. There's a lovely way to actually finish, and it's a quote that I that I gleaned from the book, which is uh, Plutarch, and he said, "The mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be kindled," and it's it's a real lesson that I take from this brilliant book, Future Minds. That's very good. I mean, that takes me back to the education point, really. About, you know, that's what education should do. It should, it should light a fire, essentially. And I think, you know, just curiosity. If you just kindle curiosity with, with corporations, that, that would alone solve the problem around innovation. And then give them the time to do something about it. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think, you know, that we've got caught up in this, in this trap of busyness and quarterly results and all the rest of it. And, and just if we just sort of breathed out a bit and relaxed a bit and gave people some time and, and became less obsessed with just instant results to things. You know, some of this stuff takes time. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Richard Watson, author, lecturer and futurist in residence at the Tech Foresight Practice at Imperial College London. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you. It's really nice to be on. Thank you so much indeed.